Okay, is so that what Planet Narnia is? No, this is not science fiction. It isn't? This is not Star Trek. No, really? this is not like that. In fact, really, this will feel much more like, uh, you know, King Arthur or a medieval story about knights or something like but that. But I was really hoping Very for a crossover. Very different kind of feel. That no, would have been awesome. <laughs> no, that would have been interesting. But this is not what we're about. Planet Narnia. Oh, you just got this image of Mr. Tumnus wearing a... A, a space start. suit? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not what we're not what we're going for here. No. Welcome to Beyond the Lamppost, a podcast dedicated to engaging the world of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm Shannon. And I'm Stephen. Here we reflect on our experience as siblings growing up in Narnia and journey deeper into its world with the eyes of young adults. Today, we're discussing Planet Narnia. So we are almost done going through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes, we are. But there's one more thing that we have to discuss. This is a very nerdy episode, but hey, I mean... If you're listening to this podcast, you probably already like really nerdy stuff. So this is the episode for you. So actually, how about you first describe how you first heard of Planet Narnia? What is it? And what were your very first impressions of it? Sure. I first heard of Planet Narnia while I was listening to a podcast. The author, Michael Ward, was being interviewed. He was actually talking about a different topic, but he mentioned the book, and it just intrigued me. Um, he, he said that it had to do with each of the seven chronicles of Narnia being based in some way on one of the seven planets of the medieval worldview of the cosmos. What? I know. It sounds kind of crazy, right? But I, I heard about it on the podcast. I actually found the book in the library while I was at college, sort of stumbling around and browsing the shelves. I was fascinated, and so I checked it out. The book was published in 2008, as I said, by Michael Ward, who's a scholar actually at Oxford. So the book was actually published by Oxford University Press. It's so it, it really is like a legitimate literary study. It's not some kind of crazy yeah. conspiracy yeah, theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, the author did publish another book later on, actually in 2010. It was published by Tyndale House, and it was called The Narnia Code. That sounds suspicious. Well, it does. He was trying to bring it down to kind of more a more popular level so that kind of non-literary scholars could understand it. I haven't actually read the book myself, but I do have to say that just the name sounds suspicious right yeah. off of the bat. A BBC documentary was made of The Narnia Code as well the following year, so maybe listeners may have heard of that as well. But at least for myself, in order to be convinced of what Ward is saying, I had to think of it not so much as a code mm. as a matter of, uh, more more a matter of C.S. Lewis's literary art at work in the Chronicles of Narnia rather than a code. C.S. Lewis is such an amazing writer, and this doesn't surprise me that he would have like this deeply embedded themes in his book. But Okay, why are we introducing this right now in the middle of talking about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I think it helps to have it because it can serve as a lens through which we view The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it can help us understand it better. 
let's unpack this a little bit. Planets, and there are only seven books, but there are eight planets, so what's going on here? Well, the crucial thing to remember is that Lewis is drawing from the imagery of the medieval worldview. Before modern science came along, people didn't believe that the sun was at the center of the solar system the way that we do now. Instead, they believed that the earth was at the center and that the other planets revolved around it. They believed that there were seven planets and each had its own sphere and sort of spun around outside. Um, the first was the moon, so the moon was actually considered a planet. And everything below the moon, that was the world of, of change and of imperfection. But above the moon, the heavens were just, were, were perfect, they were perfectly circular. And uh, you, you have the moon, you have the sun, Jupiter, Venus, and others. Um, but there were seven planets in all because, because Uranus and Neptune weren't discovered yet. They believed that the planets, or many people believe, that the planets actually influenced things that happened on Earth. This is kind of the idea that astrology is based on. Because each of the planets was associated with one of the Greco-Roman gods, or at least back in the day it used to be, so for example, Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, has the same name as the Roman god Jupiter, also known as Zeus, mm. called, called Zeus by the Greeks, for example. There are, there's sort of a different set of associations that goes with each of the planets. Okay. Based on those associations, Lewis is making a, a connection in each of his books. Each of the planets has a certain feel, and Lewis tries to kind of recreate that feel, that atmosphere, that vibe in each one of his books. Now, why would he do something like that? Why would he be interested in that? Well, you have to remember, C.S. Lewis was actually a literature professor himself, mm. specializing in medieval and Renaissance literature. That's weird to think of because I just think of him as an author of novels and other books, but really his main profession was being a professor. Yeah, absolutely. He, he taught at Oxford at Maudlin College, and actually I remember one time when I was going through the library, I saw the Oxford History of English Literature, multi-volume, each volume had a different author, and when I looked at the 16th century, oh, guess what? The author for that volume was C.S. Lewis. Hey, hey. Which was kind of funny to see that, him actually writing in his own field. Yeah. So he was very familiar with the medieval worldview and the imagery that showed up in the literature at the time, and he was fascinated with it. He loved the, the approach of the wonder. He loved the approach of the, the heavens being filled with kind of awe and meaning and that kind mm. of thing, even though he knew that the sun was actually at the center of the solar system and he didn't believe in astrology that the planets influenced things on Earth. Yeah, I was going to ask, does this mean that... C.S. Lewis is into astrology. No, yeah. no. He, he, he wasn't interested in that, in that aspect of things. It was more just a fascination with the enchantment of the worldview, kind of the way that he was fascinated with the literature itself. And we know that he was fascinated with, with all of this because it shows up quite a bit in his writings. We see even a lot of references to stars throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, first of mm, all. Yeah. But he really delves into this in his book, The Discarded Image, An Introduction to Medieval and Renaissance Literature. He talks about various aspects of the medieval worldview, including the view of the heavens as being meaningful and full of life. Probably one of the most important and most telling works by C.S. Lewis in connection to the heavens 
is a poem that he wrote in 1935, long before he had ever thought of the Chronicles of Narnia. That poem is called The Planets. In this poem, he goes through and he sort of poetically sketches the, each atmosphere and sort of the associations that go with each one of the planets. Let me give a little bit of an example of that. Ooh, Let can me, I read it? Of course. Yeah, we have an excerpt here from Lewis's poem, The Planets, and this portion of it is talking about Jupiter. Now, Jupiter is also known as Jove. That's sort of the name of the Roman god, Jupiter. So sometimes he refers to, to Jupiter as Jove here. And Jove is like jovial and happy and stuff like that. That's right. If you've ever, ever heard the word jovial, that's where it comes from. So Where do I start? Why don't we read here? It says, of wrath ended. Of wrath ended and woes mended, of winter past and guilt forgiven, and good fortune, Jove is master, and of jocund revel, laughter of ladies, the lion-hearted, the myriad-minded, men like the gods, helps and heroes, helms of nations, just and gentle are Jove's children. Work his wonders, on his white forehead, calm and kingly, no care darkens, nor wrath wrinkles, but righteous power and leisure enlarges their loose splendors, have wrapped around him a rich mantle of ease and empire. That's beautiful. It is. It's, it's an important source for understanding the connection to the planets as well. Ward noticed that the associations that were in Lewis's mind that show up in this poem, for example, are also reflected in the Chronicles of Narnia. So here, when we read this list of associations that Lewis sets out, it actually kind of sounds like things that we find in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It does. So think about this. Woes mended, wrath ended, winter passed. Yes, that especially. And guilt, guilt forgiven. forgiven. And of good fortune. Yeah. So Jove is the master of those things. Jock and revel. So we think of partying. Jollification, as Mr. Tumnus says. Jollification. Jollification, sort of a made-up word. But it goes very well it with does. the whole theme. Jove is master of those things. Lion-hearted. Lion-hearted. Aslan yep. the lion shows up very yep. much so. Helms of nations. So the idea of royalty. Just and gentle. Those are some of the names that was that Edmund and... Susan, and get Susan. at the end King of the King Edmund the Just, Queen Susan the Gentle, yep. yes. And they become helms of nations. They're royal. There's sort of um, uh, ease and, and empire, all of these things. So he's just kind of sketching here. Just think of a calm, happy king peacefully reigning on his, on his throne, and you sort of have the feel of Jupiter. Yeah. So there are multiple associations here. And we could, we could dig into these more, but there, there are quite a few. Even the color red is associated with mm. Jupiter, among other things. And the color red, along with some of the other associations, shows up quite a bit in The Lion, the Witch, and the mm. Wardrobe. So, in other words, this is not just some, like, stretch that some fans of Narnia have, like, connected something that's unrealistic. This was really seeped into a lot of Lewis's mind and his thoughts and his work, so it really yes. makes sense that he would put it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But, like... Why didn't he make that known that he made those connections? Like, why was that like a secret or something? 
I think that he left it that way because, in a sense, it didn't really need to be made known explicitly. In, in literature and in art, you know, an author or an artist doesn't always give away their secrets because that would spoil the game. You don't want to take away the experience of the reader or of the observers interacting and engaging with the work of art itself. Yeah, it's like when you're reading it, you know that it's so rich and there are so many layers that you can unpack, but when you're reading it, it just feels rich. That's and right, so and, much and Lewis it. actually had a name for this in his literary work. He called it the kappa element in romance. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so it comes from the Greek word krypton, which starts with the Greek letter kappa. It means hidden. Oh. He says, though, in, in romance, so as in like in medieval stories and, and fairy tales and things of that nature, fantasy, I guess we would call it now, there's an element that's that's hidden. It's just kind of a feel. It's a vibe. And that's really what appeals to us about it. It's not necessarily something that we look at directly or that the author presents directly to us. Okay. He, he actually talked about it this way as well. In a little piece that he wrote called A Meditation in a Tool Shed, he talked about the experience of light shining through the cracks of a dark tool shed. And it shone, and it, and it shone in and it, uh, it, it illuminated certain parts that were dark inside. And so in the light, he was able to see those things. But when he moved, and once the light was hitting him straight in the eye, he couldn't really see anymore because he was just looking straight at this dazzling light. Yeah. There's a difference between looking straight at the ray of light and looking along the ray of light. Okay. Michael Ward actually mentions this in the book himself. Interesting. What we get when we read literature, particularly literature that has this kappa element, the way that the Chronicles of Narnia do, is we get the experience of looking along the ray of light. We don't necessarily look it right in the face, unless of course we're analyzing it, as we are now a little bit, but we, we look along it and we're able to pick up sort of the vibe and the feel of it, even if we don't completely recognize exactly what it is or how he's doing it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, we definitely get a vibe of these planets while we're reading the book. Oh, hey, we have a little Mr. Tumnus, my cat, meowing Mr. in Tumnus the background. Mr. Tumnus the cat. There making he was. his podcast debut. There he is. <laughs> He's in a very whiny mood, he so he might show up again. He has some things to say on the subject, obviously. Okay, so Stephen, what are the characteristics of each of the seven planets and what books did Lewis associate with each of those? Great question. Well, we already talked about Jupiter a little bit. It's associated with happiness and royalty. And Jupiter is the dominant planet for the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. As we already talked about just a bit. Mars is associated with war. Mm. Mars is the Roman god of war and is associated also with trees, interestingly enough. Mm. Mars is the dominant planet for Prince Caspian. Mm. The next is the sun. The sun is associated with kind of alchemy and gold, among other things. There are a lot of associations with each one, but that's kind of the essence. Can you guess which book this is? The Voyage of the Dawn. 
The voyage of the dawn treader, the a... sail toward the golden sun in the east. My mind just exploded because I realized gold is a really important part of the voyage of the dawn treader in Extremely certain parts of the book. Extremely, in certain parts of the book and transformations as well. Yes. Things turning into gold or one thing turning into another. Oh, but we can explore that later. Stay there tuned. are there are so many connections to be made here. The moon, the moon is associated. So think of the moon, think of the shadows cast by the moon, and sort of a dreamy, wet, you know, pale, Lulling. silvery. Think of all of those things together. It's associated with madness as well. Think the word lunatic. Lunar, yeah. lunatic. That's ancient times associated that with the moon. <laughs> the moon is associated with the silver, silver chair, chair, which is silver, by the way, because Ooh, the moon is too. Yes. I didn't realize that. That's awesome. Yeah. Mercury was the Roman messenger god. And so Mercury became to be associated with language mm -hmm. and also with speed, among mm -hmm. other things. Mercury is the dominant planet for. The horse and his the horse boy. And his boy. Speed, especially, is a huge theme in that book. Run, run, always run. Mm -hmm. Venus the, is the goddess of sexual love and romance. Sexual love is associated with fertility. It's associated with birth and life. And so we find it to be the dominant planet for the magician's nephew. That makes a lot of sense. Where life is given to Narnia. Yeah. Saturn however, is the one that is furthest out. It's the cold, uh, unhappy god of melancholy and misfortune is the god Saturn. There's only one book left. The last, last battle, battle. The one where everything goes wrong. So, okay, let's dive into a little case study of what this looks like more specifically. Right now we're in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but let's peek into one of the other books as to what that might look like. And of course we'll go into it more in the future when we cover it, but give mm -hmm. us an overview of one of the other books. So a brief snapshot that we can look at is the association between Mars and Prince Caspian. I think this is a particularly convincing one. So Mars is of course associated with war, as well as trees. Because of Mars's association with war, we also find an association with hardness, yes, iron, and a lot of things that kind of go along with that. And we see all of that come up quite a bit. So when when the children re-enter Narnia, they find themselves in the ruins of Caraparavel. They enter into the chamber and one of the first things they see is a suit of armor. On the floor, you know, Susan picks up a chess piece. What piece is it? It's a knight. A knight, yeah. They find a chest, you know, uh, an oak chest. Oak is associated with Jupiter and kingship, but this oaken chest is reinforced with iron, associated oh, with Mars and warfare, because warfare is necessary in order to protect the proper kind of kingship and royalty. Yeah. You mentioned the hardness on the ground, and a lot of times they describe while they're on their journey, they wake up lying on the ground they describe just how hard and uncomfortable the ground is over and over again it's it's funny lewis goes out of his way to say that kind of thing even though maybe it's not like directly relevant to the story right. as he often does that kind of thing but it does create that atmosphere of just how hard their journey is on the other side of Mars, we have the association with trees. And if you remember Prince Caspian, you know that trees actually play a very important role. Mars is the only planet that is associated with a month, the month of March. Mm. Here is where our classical 
history, Greco-Roman history, comes in handy. The 16th and 17th of March in ancient Rome were the days of the Bacchanalian festivals, where they would celebrate the god Bacchus, the god of wine, also known as Dionysus. And Bacchus plays a big part in the story. At the end, there's this strange episode where while Aslan is going around freeing people from different kinds of distress, he's joined by Bacchus and by Silenus and some of his other companions as well, and they have this big party with wine and grapes and everything, and you sort of wonder what Bacchus is doing in the story. Yeah. Well, he plays a role in association with the planet Mars. These connections and the connection with the planet Mars can even bring into even sharper focus some of the themes that are being worked out in Prince Caspian. Courage, fortitude, struggling for what's right. All of these are associated with war, and we see that much more clearly. Hopefully that sketch can kind of give us a sense for really what we're talking about is not a code, It's not as if the meaning of Prince Caspian is that it's really about Mars and that's secret and whatever. Right. It's more about this this is an atmosphere of the book. This is something that you can kind of feel even if you don't know the exact connection to Mars. It's a vibe that you pick up on while reading the book. And it it feels like it's very purposeful and it makes the reading so much more engaging. That's exactly right. It's fascinating because each of the chronicles of, of Narnia, because they each have this different vibe, it shows us something different about the character of Aslan each time or about the nature of being in the service of Aslan and of okay. Aslan's world. We are about to finish up The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe on next week's episode, but we've read most of it already How has Planet Narnia shown up in what we've read so far? Well, we've already talked about it a little bit. Jupiter is associated with the passing of winter, the coming of spring. Jupiter is associated with royalty. All of these things figure very in a very large way. Um, Some of the smaller connections are the association with minotaurs. Jupiter is also associated with oaks, oak trees. And it's at a certain oak tree where the witch has to leave her wand when she first comes to to visit Aslan at the stone table. That is such a little detail that blows right by. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And oftentimes it is these little details. One of the details that kind of jumps out the page once you know that it's there is the color red. Mm -hmm. Red is associated with Jupiter. You think of the red spot on Jupiter, for example. A lot of things are red in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Even Mr. Tumnus's skin is kind of a reddy brown, I think is the phrase that Lewis uses. Uh, The lion on Peter's shield is red. They have these red banners. Um, The witch's lips even are red. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And what do you get when you are in the middle of winter and you associate the color red with jollification? Father Christmas. Father Christmas. Father Christmas is a very jovial character. That's true. And in the chapter where Father Christmas appears, Lewis talks about how the children felt this kind of solemn happiness, a shiver of gladness of the kind that you only feel when you are being being very still. Yeah. It's a very specific kind of emotion, but that's exactly the kind of emotion that's associated with the majesty of Jupiter. Jollification. Jollification. 
I love that word so much. If you want to get a little bit of a better feel for what a jovial vibe feels like, you can actually see this in, in poetry and music. So if you have ever heard of the composer Gustav Holst's Sweet the Planets, the planets in his music actually each have kind of a similar feel to the way that Lewis is using the planets. So Jupiter is called the bringer of jollity. Yeah, you, sh- you showed me those different suites, and it's kind of eerie how similar the vibe to each of the books are. It really is, and, and the vibe of the book is similar to the vibe that you get in a piece of music. It almost feels like it's the soundtrack to each of the books. It, it really does. There's another piece, actually a choral piece, that was arranged by a contemporary composer, John Rutter. It's called What Sweeter Music? Oh my gosh, I love that song. It's a good one. Look it up on Spotify or YouTube or something. It's actually a Christmas carol. So pretty. What sweeter music can we bring than a carol for to sing the birth of this our heavenly king? Do you know what that sounds like? Jollification. It sounds like jollification. That's exactly right. The text for this musical piece was actually taken from a poem by the 17th century poet Robert Herrick who lived in a time where these planetary associations were much more common and much more a part of literature than they are now. And if you listen to the lyrics of that song, you hear him talk about how December is turned into May. It sounds mm. like the coming of spring. Mm. The patient ground is turned to flowers. Mm. And how Christ, who is being born at Christmas time, is the Lord of all our reveling. That's the beautiful. idea of, of, of majesty associated with partying is very much a jovial thing. Yeah. And Jove. Maybe you've heard the word Jove before because Peter says it all the time in the line of the witch in the wardrobe. By Jove. Oh that's not a coincidence. Oh my gosh, that's wild. That is so mind-blowing right now. He really yes. does say yes, that Yes, he really does time. say it all the time. Then wow. that's why. That's amazing. Okay, so you have convinced me But what would you say to people who are a little suspicious of this? I would say there's good reason to be suspicious of something that sounds so much like a conspiracy theory. But I would just say, wait and listen. We'll talk about this more. And so we'll be able to sort of paint a little bit more of a case. And you'll hopefully be able to see how each of these themes and motifs ties in to each of the Chronicles of Narnia. But the second thing that I would say is that remember that this is actually based on and drawn from the writings of C.S. Lewis himself. He even saw planetary associations in the works of other authors, and he frequently mentions this. In Surprised by Joy, he talks about how he actually doesn't like the poetry of John Donne because it's very Saturnine. It has the melancholy feel that's associated with Saturn. And he says that, Modern literature professors are all born under Saturn. They all like modern, uh, they all like the kind of gloomy literature, and anyone who's considered to be a good author has to be gloomy. Oh, geez, that's a hot take right there. It is a hot take right there. And he really, what Lewis thought was that we've lost the, the jovial atmosphere yeah. that people used to appreciate more in the Middle Ages. Actually, in the allegory of love, Lewis notes that the 14th century poet Geoffrey Chaucer 
his work Troilus and Cressida is quote-unquote born under festal Jove. It has a jovial vibe to it. It has associations with the planet Jupiter. And so Lewis is seeing, similar to what we're seeing in Lewis, Lewis saw that in other authors as well. That's very key for understanding the way that he thought. When you understand how deeply this seeped into his psyche, you can understand that while I'm sure he was conscious of what he was doing, he probably didn't have to try very hard to work these things into his writing. This is great. I mean, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Planet Narnia will tie into the books, and hopefully we can kind of integrate little bits of Planet Narnia into each episode as we move forward. So thanks for describing all of this. This is so fascinating. I hope that all of you will find it fascinating, and I hope you'll find it convincing too. For anyone who's familiar with the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, if you look on the back of the Planet Narnia book, Wright is quoted as saying that he finds the book utterly convincing and compelling. Well, if N.T. Wright says so, you gotta be on board. Hey, he's a, he's a sophisticated scholar, hey, so... He knows what he's talking about. I hope that you'll find it utterly convincing and compelling as well. But even if not, stay tuned. And we'd love to hear what you think about all this, too. Yeah, if you want to let us know what you think, email us at beyondthelamppostpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our Facebook page at Beyond the Lamppost, and we'll give updates on the podcast there, and we would just love to hear all your comments and insights on everything. So, until next week, and remember, go forth and have jollification. Bye. <laughs> Jacob Parada. Check out more of his music at jacobparada.com.